Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi visits Ghana. What does her visit say about U.S.-Ghanaian relations? And Netflix and other international streaming and media firms are buying up African companies and content. Is this good news for the continent's creative sector? Plus, we have an in-depth conversation about U.S. and non-government programs focused on youth leadership and networking. How do they work and how do we go bigger? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and 13 members of the Congressional Black Caucus recently visited Ghana to mark the 400th anniversary of the start of the U.S. slave trade. A visit to mark 400 years since the start of the transatlantic slave trade. Ghana's parliament welcomed the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives to West Africa, from where millions of Africans were sold into a life of slavery in the Americas. Nancy Pelosi described it as a grave evil which modern-day United States is reckoning with. This was another high-level visit by a U.S. official to Ghana. It follows Commerce Secretary Ross's visit, First Lady Melania's visit in October of 2018. And joining me to discuss the speaker's visit and other topics are Yawa Hansen Kwao, Executive Director of Emerging Public Leaders, Beverly Hatcher Mbu, a Senior Associate at Development Gateway, and Esbora Lumbamba, a Digital Marketing Professional and Mandela Washington Fellow. So Speaker Pelosi and the CBC's trip, I think we can say is historic. Uh, They visited the Cape Coast and Elamina slave castles. Speaker Pelosi delivered a speech at the Ghanaian parliament. She received some fairly good press, although it's in an earlier episode on Into Africa, I, I talked about Melania's visit and how it didn't get on the front pages of the Ghanaian newspapers. And I can't make that kind of comparison this time because for some reason, lots of the great Ghanaian newspapers aren't putting the front pages on anymore. But it seems to me that it did get some significant coverage. So Yawa, as a Ghanaian, and I think you were in Accra during the visit. Can you talk a little bit about why this was significant and what the Ghanaian reaction was? Well, thank you, Judd. It's a pleasure to be here. It was a significant visit for a couple of reasons. I think that generally uh, Speaker Pelosi and some of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, like Representative Omar, are semi-celebrities because of the news they've they've uh, created over the past several weeks. And so for Ghana to, to receive two deeply admired women leaders from America, I think the press around it was really significant. I think also that the visit of such a high-level U.S. government delegation was a reminder that Ghana plays a really important role in West Africa and that uh, we are very significant uh, or a significant partner to the U.S. in overall general peace and security, but also trade uh, here on the continent. But I think thirdly, you know, this trip also in many ways demonstrates the importance of strong state institutions. I think, you know, tuning into some of the morning shows discussing this, I think some of the takeaways uh, were around the importance of strong democracy, like a Congress that has these various caucuses that are effective, that played different roles in challenging the executive at many times was also a really key lesson that people drew from the visit. Yeah, I really love when U.S. officials 
go to countries and speak at legislatures, as President Obama did when he visited Ghana. And when it's paid in return, at least Nelson Mandela did speak at the U.S. Congress, but I think those kinds of exchanges and particularly visiting other um, legislative branches is really powerful. There was uh, at least one criticism of the trip, and I want to get your thoughts on this. So an MP who's on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee wrote this column for Joy FM and, and said that you know, he was very supportive of her trip and appreciated the frankness, but he was disappointed that he didn't discuss President Trump's visa restrictions on Ghana. And this is a quote, his hardline immigration policies, which continue to target thousands of Ghanaian immigrants and other Africans in the United States. Does that critique resonate with you? Did you hear that? Uh, or is this just uh, one particular politician's view? I think there are people who share that opinion. And it is understandable. There are so many Ghanaian families who depend on remittances from their family that live in the U.S. And so there's a huge population uh, that will be affected by these policies. And my family, although we're originally from Ghana, in, in some of my formative years were spent in the U.S. because of the political instability in Ghana in the early 80s. So a lot of, you know, th- there have been sentiments expressed around um, the U.S. has always been the safe haven and a welcoming place for people no matter where they come from. And uh, the sense that that might be changing is frustrating to some people. But it's also a, a reminder that it's important to build the country where we're from, uh, that we cannot, you know, for the long term, depend on countries like the U.S. or other countries to, to, to which African immigrants um, go to, to forever be safe havens for us. And again, just buttressing the importance of building strong state institutions that deliver on the critical social and economic services to its citizens so that they'll be inclined to stay in these countries instead of leaving. I have one last question on this topic. So Pelosi's visit was the first visit by a U.S. Speaker of the House to Africa since at least 2001. It was a nightmare trying to figure that out. I even emailed the historian at the uh, U.S. Congress to try to do this, and I had to go back. No one wants to hear all the problems I had doing the research, but it was kind of confounding how difficult this was. But let me get to the main point. The main point is that Speaker Pelosi visited, Melania has visited, um, President Obama, Bush, Clinton have visited, Secretary Ross have visited, uh, and... I think we can all understand why Ghana gets all the attention, but maybe Bev and I, maybe we share as Nigeria files. Could the love be spread a little more around? I mean, is Ghana getting too much? So this is a trick question because any serious Nigerian gets this question and says, of course it's too much. And of course, the first destination should be Nigeria. So, I mean, jokes aside, I think it's fantastic. I love that Ghana is getting its just desserts as far as I'm concerned. Um, on the global stage, but there's so much more going on on the continent, and I think it's a real missed opportunity that the high-level government engagement from the U.S. side has been so limited to only a few countries. Um, There's so much more outside of that. So you'll join me in challenging the U.S. government to diversify, not to continue to engage with Ghana because of all the reasons uh, for its economic and political developments, but challenge our friends in the U.S. government to go to Nigeria and go to some of the other places that are having uh, really important moments in their political development, economic development. 100%. I'm completely behind that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) 
We're going to move to the second topic, which is about the tech front. Our listeners may know that there's this increasing competition between global streaming services to expand in sub-Saharan Africa, to acquire African content. Hollywood is coming to Netflix. Nigeria's massive film industry is known for cranking out low-budget productions, thousands of them. Now it's aiming for quality instead, and it appears to be paying off. I want to do a deep dive on this topic uh, in another episode. So Netflix, you can call me anytime. You can DM me on Twitter. We'll be happy to host you. Uh, but for right now, why don't we talk about uh, this recent acquisition uh, from the French television company Canal Plus, uh, which acquired the ROK film studio from a video-on-demand company called Iroku Television for, uh, we don't know how much. Uh, but Iroku is founded by Jason Njuku. He can all, Jason, you can also call me. We'd also like to have you on the show. Um, but he started this company in 2010. It got about $45 million in VC. It has one of the largest catalogs of Nollywood films in the world. And um, it's really a play by Canal Plus to expand in this market. So you've got Canal Plus, you've got Netflix, which has just uh, signed up for its first animated film series uh, called Mama K's Team Four. It purchased a um, South African TV series called Blood and Water. And then you also have Multi-Choice, which is a South African company owned by Naspers that has pushed out a lot of the African magic channels. So you've got this you know, really interesting moment where I think global companies recognize that Africa as an entertainment market is growing and it's important to be in that space. So Isbora, you're a digital entrepreneur. Can you Tell us about how you think about streaming services in Africa. What do you watch in Kinshasa? Um, does this present opportunities? Yeah, so on this subject, the, the opinions are divided. Personally, I'm still a fan of the streaming services, much more for the educational side than entertaining. Why I'm saying that? Because I learned English through movies and music. Mm. Yeah, so... And even when I came in, I came to the U.S. because I, I had watched these movies and TV shows on the streaming services, the environment I found myself in felt familiar. So the expansion of these uh, services on the African continent is interesting, but we should not lose sight of something quite crucial. Consuming foreign content will not serve Africans in the long term. What will be desirable is that the presence of these streaming services encourage young Africans and push them to create their own local content that represent a positive image of the continent, as Iroko TV is doing. So Kinshasa is a big is a big city with 12 million people. The, me, I had a chance to live in every corner of Kinshasa, poor corners and risk corners. But despite the social differences in Kinshasa, people tend to consume the same content online and offline. We have a big issue with uh, internet, but many people cannot afford to have a subscription on a streaming website. And uh, for example, the majority of women watch telenovelas and the most watched content is Nigerian movies. Mm -hmm. And in Kinshasa, we have people who translated those English movies into Lingala, the local language in Kinshasa. But so on it's the like, is it, can I just, is that an, a second industry? Essentially, uh, there are people who are 
adding these Lingala translations to it? or And do you also have live translations of it if there's any sort of open-air showing? Yeah, so it's not live translation. It's like they have already movies in their laptop, and it. then they just put voice on it, and they sell those movies. And uh, it's, it's like that in Kinshasa. Yeah, so on the other side, there are people who have Netflix subscriptions. But the trick is for some some people use the Netflix account of their friends and uh, the that other- happens in America <laughs> too I was going to say that it's definitely not specific to DRC <laughs> Netflix if you come on the show I'll, I'll, I'll edit that out yeah but other other people create multiple accounts to have free 33 days for 350 like for a year every month they are creating free account to have free, free account yeah to have uh, movies and shows on Netflix for free so there's no only bad in the expansion of streaming services. Their presence in Africa creates competition and uh, it allows people to have more choices and which drive actors in the sector to be more innovative. Also, it adds more professional and international credibility to their prediction of the content. And as of now, this is the one of the biggest challenges in Africans, creating good content by Africans, for Africans, and for the world. Okay, let me throw this back to Bev, because uh, you and I have been talking about uh, Prosper Africa, U.S. strategic uh, competitive advantage when it comes to commerce. The entertainment field continues to be one that that I think is is a place where the U.S. has real strengths and there's an opportunity for real growth. So at least Nollywood is a $4.2 billion industry. The estimates vary, but maybe half a million people employed. What do you think? Is this a place that the U.S. should be thinking about expanding or, or sharing its know-how? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I mean, and since a lot of what we're discussing today is about youth and the future of the continent, 19% of global youth population currently is African, projected to be 42% by 2030. So when you look at that demographic right there, any sane, in my view, any sane company that is looking looking for an expanded consumer base, like you should be watching those numbers. You should be watching what African youth are consuming and what they're interested in. Uh, that's a real market opportunity. I think there are, there's enormous potential. We're already seeing those kinds of uh, relationships built between Afrobeats musicians and American musicians. Why not in film, TV, and other media? I think one of the pitfalls, and it's not, I don't think, unique to African creatives, but globally, is about making sure that creatives and artists really get sort of the legal and creative control over the work that they're doing. Um, I'm very particular about that. I think from a legal perspective, both that you are compensated appropriately and that you also have the creative control to be able to tell the stories the way, the best way that you know how. I wouldn't want a narrowing of the space such that African stories are now being reformulated or redone to meet a perceived broader audience. And there's there are so many stories to be told and there's room for many more than we have. That's an important piece of that relationship that like creative control is honored. And I think that's something that Netflix, I have to say, is doing really well. Um, in the US, Netflix has been a great force for driving creators of color, lesser known people, and giving them the opportunity to make brilliant content. And I think that value set is global. I think that idea of telling stories that aren't being told enough by bringing in diverse voices, that Africa absolutely has a place in that space. I'm happy to see that Netflix is doing that and to see how others um, pick up on other streaming services, pick up on that. Well, I'd really like to to do more on this here at CSIS, so hopefully stay tuned. But I think there's a really important conversation about uh, the creative sector. And related to that is actually soft power, 
uh, African soft power and the way that the U.S. government and other international actors navigate in it. So again, something that I think we we hope in the coming year to address uh, both on the podcast but at our events. So our main topic today um, is about Africa's next leaders. I saw the talent of young people all across the continent. And as president, I want to make sure that even as we're working with governments, we're also helping to empower young Africans like all of you. And that's why I launched YALI, Young African Leaders Initiative. We're very lucky to have three people here who are either beneficiaries of these types of programs or leaders uh, in youth empowerment. And I wanted to spend some time talking about the programs, what do they do, maybe what they can't do, uh, and, and where should we go. So Isbora is a Washington Mandela Fellow, and we are hosting him at CSIS for the month. And I, that was part of the reason why we wanted to do this, uh, this topic today. This is a bipartisan program. It was started by President Obama, uh, but it's been carried through by President Trump. So Isbora, Will you tell us a little bit about your experience so far as a Mandela Fellow, um, and what do you want to see the fellowship do in terms of your career goals? I went to Northwestern University. I was in the leadership in business track. So far, I've been learning a lot at Northwestern University, and in just a few weeks, I learned a lot. And it would be a big loss for the U.S. State Department, for my country, my continent, if after this program, go back home and I do not create what I had in, in my, like, my to-do list because I have a small list with, with uh, I would like to do. And it's like to create at least one million jobs for young people in DRC. You, you want to create one million jobs? Yeah. Okay. It's possible. I, I'm, I'm for it. Okay. I'm for it. <laughs> yeah. Ambitious. <laughs> I know I can empower young people while I'm while having my business and building the environment in which they can learn and make money. So I've been already working in digital and with student and uh, with skills I'm taking from this experience. I think I will do more once I'll be home. Okay, well that's wonderful. We at CSIS are, are doing our best to help help you get you know all the types of experiences you need. Uh, to create a million jobs uh, in Congo when you go back. Uh, Bev, you're kind of in a different place, right? You and I have gotten to know each other over the last year, and so you're part of two different networking associations, the Young African Professionals uh, here in D.C., which is a network of 10,000 young professionals uh, in the D.C. metro area, and then our own CSIS Africa Policy Accelerator, which doesn't have 10,000 members. Um, But both of them are about, I think, connecting people, um, and maybe it would be useful to understand how, you know, you see uh, these more informal programs with the, and the networking opportunities they provide. Sure. I think I can speak only from personal experience, but both experiences with uh, young African professionals and with the Africa Policy Accelerator have been crucial for me. It's really about tribe building. I think change happens maybe more slowly than we would like. And it's lovely to be with a tribe of people in the broader sense of the word 
who really share the same kinds of goals, um, big and small goals, and we can cheer each other on. Um, I've been involved in Africa focus groups since I was in college. And it may be a bit cliche, but we had a, a proverb that is called an African proverb. I'm sure it's attributable to a specific country. But among my Wellesley African friends, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think that that's the best way to sum up the value of these kinds of networks, a part of a support system to each other um, as we pursue many different goals. Uh, for me, specific to working in data and technology, things move so quickly. And I think DC is really a hotbed for a lot of African talent and ideas. So being able to tap into that and understand what is happening and benefit from that expertise is really valuable. Plus, our Africa Policy Accelerator is a lot of fun. Yes. Did I forget to mention fun? Fun yes. is definitely a mention part of it. Fun. It's not all serious. Okay. Uh, Yawa, your organization, Emerging Public Leaders, works to place talented young Africans in their country's civil service. So I, I know you have... Uh, a lot of ex work in Liberia and Ghana. My understanding is you're looking to expand. Um, I think it would be really helpful to hear about your program. It, it rounds out uh, what um, Bev and Isbora had, had mentioned. Absolutely. I mean, essentially, we believe in the promise of a better Africa, a continent that is prosperous, peaceful, and just. And we believe that that can't be achieved without great talent in public service. So we're working to create a pipeline of, of future public servants um, who are competent, who, are, um, who act ethically, and will really drive change in the government sector. And we're motivated to do this because without a thriving public sector to deliver on critical social services, um, the future of all of our countries are really limited. And just piggybacking on the conversation before about the technologies, whether it's for media and entertainment like Netflix, or whether it's imagining a world in which there might be driverless cars, we also need to think about who's going to write the policies um, in that type of world. And so we're really passionate about, you know, creating a pipeline of talent. We offer a two-year fellowship that recruits the best and brightest uh, university graduates in Liberia and in Ghana and soon to be in Cote d'Ivoire. And we work as a partner with governments there uh, to place them into civil service job roles. So we've created really a merit-based pathway into public service that provides equal opportunity to men and women and minorities and people from uh, disparate backgrounds all across the countries. And really, you know, for the young people who sign up and, and you know, go through our very competitive and rigorous process to become a fellow, you know, many of them tell us they, they would not have imagined that they could have worked for government any other way. And as, as Bora might know, um, you know, in West Africa, they say, you know, you get government jobs based on who you know. So really, um, it, it's about making sure that no matter what your political affiliation is or your um, your your connections, personal connections, you if you are the best person for the job, you can get it. So the hope is that we will, you know, as we roll out our programming in new countries, create a cadre of new leaders that will really drive an African renaissance. What I really like about your program, and we talked about this when we met earlier this year, is that for a number of decades, probably 80s, 90s, and then in the early aughts, people started walking away from this civil service rebuilding, revitalization project. I mean, they started to focus on other sectors. And 
the civil service is so critical to everything that we do. And so what I what I think is so important about the program is not only is, are, as you said, you're creating this bridge uh, in which young, talented Africans can can have this profession where they can really affect change, but getting civil services to work is so important. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad that you're leading the charge in bringing, bringing the civil service back into the conversation. I have a couple of, like, big big questions that anyone can jump into, but... We just talked about three very different programs, uh, whether it's the Emerging Leaders or the Mandela Washington Fellowship or the different networking organizations that Bev's part of. Um, and do they need to all work together? Does there need to be a sense of deconfliction or coordination? It, it seems like we're talking about different parts of a, an individual's career ladder. I mean, how organized or unorganized should this be? I mean. It seems like there's increasingly a proliferation of this, these types of organizations and programs. You know, I think of it as a continuum. For example, our program is really for early stage um, career, you know, public servants. Many of our public service fellows go on to do the YALI program or have the benefit of other leadership enrichment opportunities. And I do think that, you know, there, there's space for each and every one of them, and each of them provides different types of enrichment. Our program keeps fellows in the country where they're from to serve their government. And I think there's a benefit in these other opportunities that take uh, our, you know, that take talented Africans abroad to give them that rounded exposure. I also think there's opportunity to collaborate, which is why, you know, we have been over the past year, you know, reaching out to some of these other organizations to really contemplate how to how to become pipeline partners to each other, how to consider um, wraparound opportunities, you know, for our fellows while they're on their fellowship or beyond. And so I, you know, I, I think there's a place for each of these programs and how they're delivered. And I do see room for further collaboration. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I really like the way that you as an organization are thinking about those partnerships. Beth? Yeah, I love the idea of pipeline partners because I think there's something to be said for looking at development holistically, development of individual leadership holistically. It's both about the formal and informal opportunities to engage and think through ideas. There is room for incredible programs like Mandela Program and Emerging Public Leaders. But it's also wonderful to have time, um, so to speak, off the clock to think through actual ideas. Because another thing that I think is critical with our leadership is new and creative ways of solving old problems and having a chance to chat off the record with one another and brainstorm ideas, practically speaking, I think also offers value. I definitely don't see them necessarily in conflict, but sort of parts of a whole, parts of training up a whole, a whole, a whole individual, a whole cadre um, of future leaders. I'm not going to ask Isbora this, uh, but I, I do want to just identify this uh, for our audience that the the Mandela Fellowship does have incredible bipartisan support, and you've seen that over the last couple of weeks if you're following some of the Instagram and Twitter pages of all the fellows and of of U.S. officials. But it is true that it has decreased in size from 1,000 fellows to 700. And then there's this conversation that we've had in other venues about more African students are going to China than they are going to the U.S. 
you know, I keep looking for ways for us to sustain our commitment for these people-to-people ties and, and expand these programs. A good friend of the podcast, Aubrey Hirby, has mentioned a couple of times now that this year marks the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy airlift that brought hundreds of East African students to the United States, including President Obama's father. So I'd love to hear how do we honor that legacy of the airlift, of some of these programs, and then more interesting, how do we like get to the next level? How do we go big? Maybe, Yawa, can I have you try to hit that question first? Um, you might see that there's a greater likelihood that they've sent their children abroad too. I would encourage that we not only look to the U.S. as the one who does the lifting and taking of Africans to the U.S. or elsewhere to study, but I think um, many African parents, especially in Ghana and across West Africa, I mean, Ghana is now a middle-income country. You're seeing a lot of parents, you know, making that conscious decision to give, who recognize ab- absolutely that, you know, we're now living in a very global world and they want to give their kids the benefit of a, a different um, experience. And often the U.S. is where they look to for for college and university and sometimes master's programs. So, you know, I think part of how to honor that legacy um, is, you know, to continue in that spirit of providing the next generation of young people the opportunity to study abroad. And I think, you know, and it's not just the U.S.'s responsibility. I think that um, the Internet and and Coursera and, and programs like that that kind of have ubiquitized the access to to content and learning have helped so you don't necessarily need to physically leave. But I think, you know, as we look of um, some some of the current trends in the developed world towards looking inwards, um, I think it provides some sort of opportunity to Africa to think differently about how we will chart our course. I really like that. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity to create, you know, expand online courses, as you mentioned, but there's a number of universities now that are building campuses in sub-Saharan Africa, whether it's uh, Carnegie Mellon in, in Kigali or American University in Adamawa State in Nigeria. And then there's just this idea that a successful African leader is going to be a global citizen. And so that means the exposure to the U.S., but it also means a broader exposure. And I, I, I don't think we've talked about that enough, so I really appreciate that, Yawa. Bev, do you have any comments? Oh, yeah, always. <laughs> um, I think when I was sort of reflecting on this, one of the things that I thought about was that there's a long history here. And while I think it's great when the federal government chooses to be engaged in supporting future leadership, it doesn't have to only rely on the federal government. I think universities across America for many years have welcomed you know, thousands of African students over time um, who have contributed enormously, have greatly enriched the intellectual communities in which they've been a part of. And I would love to hear more of those stories if we're talking about really commemorating these 60 years since the airlift. I would love to hear more of those stories from the universities who have welcomed and shaped these students. At the end of the day, it's a two-way street. I think America stands to benefit hugely when African students, when the bright, you know, stars of the future are educated here. And there's a long tradition of it. You know, Namdi Azikwe spent time at Howard here in D.C., um, Kwame Nkrumah spent time at Lincoln, at Lincoln University, at University of Pennsylvania. How, how often are we talking about that? There's a long tradition and it can continue to be honored. So I think to the extent that we can focus on it being really continuing to be a two-way street where everybody benefits, when we have exposure, when Africans have exposure to American education, when American educational communities have exposure to Africans, we all benefit. Um, so I'd love to see more of that in commemorating. 
I think that's a great way to end the episode. Uh, Everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Judd. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.